Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. The judges have basically said anything goes. It doesn't matter. Anything goes. Election laws are just suggestions. So um, if anything goes, anything goes. But hopefully we're going to discuss those issues now with a stabilized Colorado system. Unlike last summer when we were trying to discuss really tough issues with uncertainty about whether the system would crash into the mud. We are in the summer season. We are in the fire season. We really need to have a solution immediately. And I just think it's disappointing because right now we don't have anything. Our country is on the very brink of being controlled by extremists who lie, cheat, and line their pockets at our expense. I feel very deep sympathy for people who feel they were born in the wrong body, but I also believe that biological males should not compete against females because it's unfair. And with me to talk about what's next for Carrie Lake's appeal after a defeat in week in court this week, a new entrant into a Democratic congressional primary and more, our former state school superintendent Jaime Molera with the firm Molera Alvarez. Hey, Jaime. Hello. And attorney Tom Ryan. Tom, good morning to you. Good morning. So, uh, hi, uh, Tom, you are the uh, the lawyer in the room. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to ask you uh, about uh, Carrie Lake's appeal. She's, she lost this week at, at in court, um, basically could not prove that Maricopa County did not verify signatures uh, in last year's election. What does she have to show the state Supreme Court, assuming that's where she's going to take it next? Well, uh, she's going to – she has a right to take an expedited appeal to the Supreme Court. But the problem for her on appeal is this. The um, the facts are set at the trial level. The Supreme Court does not determine facts. That was determined by Judge Peter Thompson. Uh, Carrie Lake had one simple job, which was to prove that no signature verification of the ballots was done at any level. And the two witnesses she brought in for the trial to show that it hadn't been done showed exactly the opposite, 180 degree opposite, showed that signature verification was going on. And that's why she lost. Jaime, presumably, she said she's going to appeal. Are there some number of Republicans in Arizona who are like, God, just like, let's be done with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, I'm not an attorney, but I'll, I'll act play like one on the radio. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if this is analogous to uh, somebody that's playing poker and you know that they don't have a hand, but uh, she keeps going all in <laughs> and, and she keeps losing. So, yeah, at some point, it just um, I think a lot of the Republicans would like to. Uh, Republican leadership, Republican lawmakers w- would love to see this move on because at this point, it's just really not helping the brand very much. So she also announced this week at the same time she talked about her appeal, a ballot chasing right. strategy uh, that she's going to be uh, pursuing going into the next election. How is this different than what most campaigns typically do every election? It, it really isn't. I mean, most sophisticated campaigns nowadays at every level really goes after and make sure that they're they know that they can go after those folks that they believe voted and make sure that their votes are are put in put in the uh, the in the elections. Carrie Carrie Lake has proven by her announcement about ballot chasing that if you say it loud enough and with enough anger, um, it's going to make it sound like it's really important when it's a big nothing burger as it is here. Is this Jaime? Do you think in some way an indication that maybe? 
maybe she wouldn't say it, but is this maybe a tacit acknowledgement that maybe her campaign didn't do a good enough job of this last year? Well, if they've come to that realization, I think they're the last per- people to come to that realization <laughs> uh, because it was a very, very poorly run campaign. It, it, I mean, for all of the criticisms of uh, her policy positions and the, the things that were pretty extreme, the way they actually ran the campaign was very sophomoric, in my opinion. And I think a lot of folks would agree with that. I think she, with all her issues, she still could have won that election, but they just didn't do the basic blocking and tackling that campaigns need to do. And and for somebody that uh, you know surrounded herself with a lot of the uh, folks of, uh, linked to the Trump campaign, it was just really – it was very amateurish on how that, how that was run. So, Tom, one of the other things she said this week was that she is still thinking about a U.S. Senate run. Um, she's not ready to say anything yet. Um, it, I love asking people to wade into the other side's <laughs> internal <laughs> politics. Do you see a scenario in, under which she does not run for U.S. Senate? Um, it's possible, but I think she will. I, I think uh, she sees herself um, – she has a kind of a savior complex, much like Trump, only I can save our country. Um, she's going to have a tough uh, Trump-like field. You got uh, Sheriff Lamb from Pinal Mark County. Lamb, yeah. Mark Yeah, Mark Lamb. Uh, you know, you got some – it's going to be a tough uh, battle in the Republican primary. And what you're going to see is each of them trying to outmaneuver to the right – and I don't know that you can outmaneuver Carrie Lake to the right. So uh, – and it's why I think Karen Taylor Robeson looked at this and said, this is not my race. This is not my time. I'm not going to be in this this mess again. And I, I, you know, I, it'll, I do see Carrie Lake running though for Senate more likely than not. Yeah, I, mean, I want to ask you about uh, Karen Taylor Robeson in a minute. Mm-hmm. But it, assuming that Carrie Lake gets in and she hasn't said she will. She hasn't said she won't. We have no idea. We don't know who else might get in as well. Uh, let's assume for sake of argument that, that Carrie Lake does run for U.S. Senate. Does that mean the primary is essentially hers to lose? I'm not so sure about that because um, the other person you haven't mentioned is Blake Masters. Mm, uh, yeah, right. Still indicated the nominee and, from last year. And has a lot of resources and connections to a lot of resources. Uh, so if you're running a, a, a number of folks uh, like Sheriff Lamb, like Carrie Lake, like Blake Masters, um, and who else? Who knows who else might sure. jump into the fray? Then it's the organization and the the fundraising and all those aspects like we just talked about. You know the blocking and tackling. And I don't see Lake as being um, running away with it. So I think if there's a crowded field, I think a lot of things, anything can happen. How significant is it for the field and for maybe, and I hesitate to use this phrase, but I'll use it anyway, establishment Republicans that Robeson decided not to run. So I, I don't believe um, Karen Taylor Robeson has ever been sh- – has ever shown an interest in congressional or Senate issues. More I think of an she, executive. I think she's more, much more of an executive. I think she still has a lot of um, interest in being Arizona governor. Uh, I think she'd be formidable again if she were to run in a few years. So I think that's the pathway I could see her being much more um, drawn to. Is there another – candidate or potential candidate sort of in that lane, conservative but not maybe Trump, Trump-like Trump to run? I mean, people have talked, for example, about Doug Ducey over the years. He's also not shown an indication in a legislating type role, more of an executive type role. But is there somebody else out there who could sort of fill that fill that lane? I, I think there's always somebody that can come out and surprise you. You know, we have a, a lot of Former journalists that are running, maybe Mark Brody decides <laughs> to jump in. <laughs> Hard pass. 
I'll give you a name. Jeff DeWitt. Sure. Yeah, Jeff. Party chair. Yeah, he's got uh, he's got a lot of chops. Uh, he's more of the conservative, more of the traditional conservative Republican. And if he got in, I I think he'd be a formidable candidate. Have you gotten any kind of indication that he's interested? Nope. I'm not. I'm not sure you guys like <laughs> no, text all the time or no, anything. No, 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 no. I I did represent him when he was uh, when he was uh, at the state treasurer. Okay. And yeah. Prop one two three. Okay. Uh, when that was going on, but uh, you know he's an impressive guy. I don't know that he'll run, but we're talking about what ifs. Uh, he'd be a good what if for a traditional Republican candidate. Is it important, Jaime, for Republicans in the state to have sort of a diversity of types of candidates? Because we talked about, for example, Mark Lamb, Carrie Lake, Blake Masters. They all, they're all very different people, obviously. But policy-wise and in some senses style-wise, there are a lot of similarities between them. Is it important that there is a Jeff DeWitt type or a Karen Taylor Robeson type or Doug Ducey type or name some other sort of establishment Republican type? Well, I- I've always believed in John Kyle always said there's two ways to run an election, unopposed and scared. And, <laughs> and, and I think having but, – but, but the one thing Senator Kyle taught me is primaries can be very good for the party uh, it, because it, it tends to bring out people that really, again, are organized, that have a good campaign team, that know how to fundraise, especially when it's very contested. So now that doesn't always happen, <laughs> but that that tends to be a much um, healthy process. So I think the Republicans and I think there's a number of folks, even in the legislature, that could be yeah. pretty formidable. Um, it's just it's just getting that organization and fundraising that's so critical. And nowadays, especially um, the U.S. Senate race, um, the Arizona Senate race is one of those that is the most expensive in the country. So you have to have somebody. Mark Brnovich, for instance, when he ran uh, for U.S. Senate, didn't do a very good job of raising the resources and was totally uh, a distant third place. Right. The ones that were up there that were formidable was the Blake Masters and because Jim they, and because they have the resources. Right. So it's somebody that can raise the money to be competitive. That would be absolutely critical. So, Jaime, you're not announcing your candidacy here today. Is that, is that what I'm hearing here? No, I gave up my uh, masochist card a long time ago. <laughs> so, Tom, let me ask you about another election-related thing from this week. This is uh, State Senator Sonny Borelli sent a letter to uh, county officials across the state, basically telling them that they were not allowed to use electric, electronic tabulating machines uh, in this election, not based on a bill that the legislature had passed, which they did, although the governor vetoed it, but because of a non-binding resolution that the legislature passed? Correct. Uh, a resolution is merely that. It's a piece of paper that says uh, this is something we wish would be done. Typically, a resolution is sent to like the president or Congress telling them, please do this or please don't do this, uh, but it doesn't have the force and effect of law. The only time it has the force and effect of law is when they pass a concurrent resolution making binding rules for the the state legislature. So when he sent it out, it was received the way that it should be received, mostly laughed at and thrown into the circular file. Um, it, it's, it, the, it comes from this idea that the legislature has this super plenary power that is more powerful than the governor and the Supreme Court. Uh, it's, we have the right to make this law and it is law. There's no truth to that. It's just something that's part of the conspiracy realm out there in the world. So do you get the sense that this was just an attempt to see if anybody would go along with it? No, I, there is a concerted effort uh, uh, and I was just showing Jaime before we got in here. There is a concerted effort to get rid of all electronic machines, to have one-day votes, to get rid of early uh, ballots. 
to do all of that. It, it's it would make it would make elections an absolute um, disaster. It, you could not possibly do it with, with the millions and millions of people that are here in Arizona that vote. It, we saw the the cyber ninjas audit, which took weeks and weeks and weeks, took m- millions of dollars. And they were only looking at one race. I mean, when uh, and this is the other thing Jaime and I were talking about beforehand. If you look at a ballot, um, because we all are in different legislative districts, school districts, uh, some of us have to vote on judges in Pima County. Some of us have to vote in, on judges in Coconino County or Pinal County. When you look at all the different ballots that have to be printed, that is just insanity because none of them are the same. And Lastly, and this is another point that Jaime made before we came in here, which is machine counting is so much more accurate than, you know, eyeball counting by a human. The, the, the rate of error is so much lower. But that's what's going on. And it's – no, this wasn't just a one-off. This is – there is a more concerted effort to get rid of the electronic machines. Jaime, as Tom referenced, we've seen this especially from the right, the far right, uh, trying to, you know, just have one-day voting, more hand counting, that kind of thing, get rid of early voting, which – as we've discussed on this show a lot, is very surprising because Republicans really pioneered and were the first to perfect early voting. Oh, absolutely. Again, working on the um, – when I was working for Governor Hall, when I worked for John McCain or, or John Kyle, that was a part of the campaign strategy because especially uh, mail-in ballots, um, that tended to favor Republicans mm-hmm. because older people loved – to just go, not be bothered with having to go in, and it, right. it made it much easier to um, target those voters, and to get away from that, and and get away from early voting, which has been a boon to Republicans for decades here in Arizona, yeah. makes absolutely zero sense. It's just being led by that small group, and again, it goes back to uh, the election deniers that believe that um, they were robbed, and the only way to solve it is to employ these types of uh, solutions. But really, they're, they're solutions in search of problems instead of the other way around. Got it. All right. That is Jaime Molera, also joined by Tom Ryan. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Jaime, let me ask you about uh, some news from just yesterday. We found out that the governor's chief of staff, Ali Bones, would be uh, stepping down from that role. Um, this is, I mean, chief of staff for a governor is a hard, hard job. What do you make of the fact that her initial chief of staff didn't make it through the end of the legislative session? Well, it's it's not uncommon, and we've seen it before. Five Symington's very first chief of staff lasted, I want to say, like seven months. Uh, Jam Brewer's first chief of staff lasted a few months, uh, about seven, eight months. Um, and Ali lasted about six months. But a lot of times, governors tend to be drawn to people they're very close to and, and they trust. But but the chief of staff role, uh, especially in, in our government structure, is a very important, very difficult position to have because you have to be the gatekeeper. You have to be the one that tends to, you know, crack a lot of knuckles <laughs> or maybe more. Yeah. Um, and so I think you need to have somebody with a lot of political acumen that has been through a lot of those t- types of fights before. Um, not to say that Ali didn't ha- bring a lot of uh, skills and, and things that I think was beneficial to Governor House, but I think it became apparent, especially as the legislative session went on, a lot of the um, critique that was occurring, not just from the Republicans, but also from the Democrat caucuses. They felt like they weren't being included and they weren't being a part of a a bigger strategy. I think uh, they came to the realization some changes had to be made. Yeah, Tom, this is, as Jaime said, a very, very important job wearing a lot of different hats. 
Is it possible for one person to really excel at all of them? Uh, absolutely, yes. And one of the names that uh, Jaime had mentioned before, Eileen Klein, uh, was very successful. For Governor Brewer, yeah. Correct. Uh, Chris Hirschdam has been very successful. There have been some uh, outstanding chiefs of staff. The hard part is you've got to be able to look people you like and know and tell them no. And that's a very hard, a very hard part of the job. No, I'm not doing that. No, the governor's not doing that. Or yes, you're going to have to do that. Uh, you know, you have to be uh, uh, a knuckle cracker, a head cracker, an elbow bender. And Allie is a very nice person. I don't know that she had those skills. I'm not saying that to be critical, but that's just part of the job. You know, it's a very tough job. When you talk about having to look somebody that you know and like in the eye and tell them no, does that include their boss? Yes. Yes, it does. Chief of staff means being able to look at Katie and saying, Katie, that's not a great idea. Katie, you're going to get yourself in trouble on this. Or Katie, that's not politically wise. Or Katie, yes, you should go out and do that. That's a, it's, a, it's not an easy job. You're not a well-liked person uh, if you're doing your job right. It's a, it's a tough job. So, Jaime, when the governor looks for somebody, you mentioned that a lot of times governors will come in, especially in their first terms, with people they know and they trust that are kind of part of their inner circle. So I guess how far out of her inner circle should Governor Hobbs be looking now to replace <laughs> Allie Bones? Well, it's it, here's the, the little bit of the difficulty is that the Democrats really have not had a farm team for a long time, right? You haven't had people that were a speaker or president or even in statewide elected mm -hmm. uh, offices. So there's not a lot of folks that can be plucked. When Jenna Napolitano came in, she had a lot of folks from her attorney general's office that she recruited, but she also had a lot of folks from the legislature that had a lot of experience, uh, like a George Cunningham type of right. person. So that's been, I think, the difficulty. Um, she has a lot of very intelligent staff, but very inexperienced when it comes to legislative maneuvering. That's why I think there is going to be... Um, more of a of a shakeup within the eighth and ninth floors. I think in the next couple of weeks, and that, especially after the session, I think they're going to reorganize uh, based on that fact. You're assuming the session is actually going to end at some point. <laughs> I'm an optimist. I've always <laughs> said that. I, uh... <laughs> All right. So, guys, we talked a little bit about uh, Karen Taylor Robeson not running for the U.S. Senate. This week, uh, we had an entrant into a congressional primary on the Democratic side. Uh, Marlene Galan-Woods, former TV uh, anchor, former uh, – she is the widow of former Attorney General Grant Woods. This is, uh, Tom, seen as a fairly competitive primary for sure, potentially competitive general election as well. What do you think her entrance into this race, which already has a number of other candidates in it, means right. for that race? Oh, yeah. I, I, first off, I, Marlene used to be a Republican uh, when she was married to Grant Woods. She and Grant later uh, you know, converted over to being Democrats. But here's why I think she's, uh, she's got to be considered at the top of the list. Uh, if you look, uh, a lot of the a lot of the Republican Party has moved out of the center right position to the far right position, so it's left the center right field open for somebody like uh, Marlene Galan Woods to come in and um, you know fill the center right position, be basically kind of a conservative Democrat. Um, here's the other thing: I you know she's if you watched her video, she's very thoughtful. Uh, she comes across as compassionate and empathetic. Uh, she's um, well-versed in issues. She's, in essence, the anti-Carrie Lake uh, candidate. Uh, she's just the opposite of that angry, bitter, uh, unsympathetic uh, former journalist personality. Uh, she's going to be a formidable candidate. 
Jaime, I'm going to paraphrase badly, I think, Mark Twain here when talking about David Schweikert, the incumbent in that district, that you know the reports of his political demise seemingly have been fairly greatly exaggerated. Yeah, I mean, he's been seen as vulnerable for the last several cycles and he's won each time. Yes, by a smaller margin in some elections and others, but is he actually vulnerable this year? Or next year, sorry? I, I think he is. I think uh, especially with the, the, the national dynamics, uh, if you have um, President Trump at the top of the ticket, that could drive a lot of fishers and it brings a lot of people out to vote and um, higher voting um, percentages tend to be better for the Democrats, especially in a presidential election year. But, but the thing that I would say about Marlene's candidacy is that while I would agree, I think she's very impressive. Um, I think she's more centrist in a lot of ways. But she still has to get out of a Democratic primary. Just yes. like right. um, And a crowded one too at this point. I remember when Grant Woods, when he was still with us and he was being rumored to run for the U.S. Senate seat, um, he got attacked by the left saying that he's really not a Democrat. You know? And so I could see that same scenario. I think some of the candidates that are running for the primary on the Democrat side uh, tend to be much more progressive and are going to attack her for really not being a true Democrat. So it'll be interesting to see how – She's going to be able to maneuver that. And if she can get out of the primary, she, absolutely, she'll be very formidable. But getting out of the primary is going to be the big question. She may have she may have some – because of that prior experience that Jaime just talked about with her husband, um, she'll be much more prepared for dealing with uh, the attack from the left. And I th but I think you're right. I think that's – that's the way to defeat her in the primary would be the attack from the, the left saying, hey, you know, you're just a Republican. You're a Democrat in Republican clothing here. Do you think she can get out of the Democratic primary? I'm going to say I'm going to say probably with a 66 to 75 percent chance she'll get out. I'm, I'm pretty high on her getting out. It's not – none of it's ever slam dunk. Things can always change. Sure. We'll see what happens here with, uh, you know, whether or not we go into default on our <laughs> budget or not. I mean, there's so many things that can change. But – I she's right now number one with a bullet in my 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 book. I mean, if let's assume she, as Tom suggests, let's for sake of argument, let's say she makes it out of the primary. Is she the strongest general election opponent on the Democratic side against Schweikert? Do you think? I would think so. I would think so, especially for that district. The makeup of that district is yeah. still Republican district. Scottsdale, um, sort of Fountain Hills, that sort of Northeast Valley area. And and she would be very formidable if she can get out. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what the legislature has been doing recently. Not a ton of time left, but they, they haven't been doing a ton lately because they've been out of session. But um, Governor Hobbs vetoed a few more bills uh, this week, including some, quote unquote, culture war bills dealing with uh, pronouns in schools, some elections bills. Um, Jaime, is there sort of an over under on how many vetoes she's going to end up with this session at this point? Well, I was teasing some of her staff because I I feel like I was around in the pre-steroid era when Governor <laughs> Hull, when Governor Hull would veto uh -huh. bills. It was her own party, so I think that's more legitimate. It's easy to veto. So you're putting an asterisk on this one. Uh, absolutely, I am, and I've told that to Napolitano's staff. I told that to Hobbs's staff. Um, but I think she's absolutely as long as the Republicans are going to be there and if they're going to stay in session and keep throwing bills up to her, she'll keep knocking them down. Do you think that so they're supposed to come back on June 12th to? They have a couple big outstanding things left to do. There's also been a rumor that maybe they're just going to keep the session open to make sure that, you know, if Governor Hobbs does something they don't like, that, you know, they can do something about it. Right. That, of course, means that all the bills that she did sign don't go into effect. Correct. So there's that consideration. But do you think that, that they're going to be in session for a while longer yet? Well, based on some uh, conversations I recently had, it seems so. 
Um, I've heard that they're going to come back uh, the week of the 12th, uh, maybe get a few things done, and then uh, adjourn again for another month. Wow. And then come back in July. So that seems to be the game plan now. I, the, the other thing that I think is problematic for the rank-and-file Republican caucus members is that even though it's only 23, they still have to get out and get going as far as their campaigns and raising money. And there are prohibitions about that during session. Correct. All right. So, Tom, nothing nothing makes lawmakers happier, I think, than being in session in July. Uh, this is nuts. And, and here we are spending time with, uh, you know, uh, Judy uh, Hamilton uh, or you Stephanie know, Stahl Hamilton, Stephanie Stahl Hamilton and whether where she did what she did with the Bibles. <laughs> you know, I, I get that it was a bad prank. It was not well thought out. And yet here we are spending more time uh, having an ethics hearing on this. It should have been, I'm sorry, I, it was wrong and everybody should have left it at that, but we're, we're going to waste time on it. So yes, I do expect a, an expended, extended <laughs> legislative session where not much has really gotten done. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is attorney Tom Ryan, also former state school superintendent Jaime Molera. Guys, thanks for coming in. Have a great holiday weekend. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.